There's no reason we can't make a river crossing at night, even if it is icy. It's only 800 yards, the former surveyor told Gist, patting him on the back. Let's shove off. Gist exhaled and let his arm drop to his side. Whatever you say, Major Washington. Max and Kate looked at one another in alarm. This could be risky, lass. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 27 from The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, entitled Baptism by Ice. And uh, rest assured, this does not take place in a church or in a training room, for that matter. But I'll tell you what, it'll be a cold day in December when you hear this story. <laughs> I see it's... It is hard to believe he actually won... Shh. Quiet, Les. He doesn't know yet. In due time, my pet. In due time. We, oui, uh, je comprends. Uh, what's all this about? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, okay, well, I'm convinced. <laughs> that were easy. Ah, uh, I believe that was said with a hint of sarcasm. Sarcasm? Moi? Use sarcasm? <laughs> as if. I say, his acting skills are lacking a bit as well. Uh, well, he must be doing something right if he's winning. Shh. I say, ixnay on the inning way. Oh, pardon, pardon, me and my big mouth. Seriously, what is going on? Nothing. Okay, fine. Uh, and by the way, has anybody heard from Miss Jenny? She didn't tell me her Jenny's corner topic. Uh, um, let's see, let's see if I heard from Jenny. Well, apparently this week's episode is a mystery. Hey, tis a mystery, all right. I say, you nailed it, old chap. Nothing gets past you, does it? Boy, talk about lousy acting. You realize nobody believes any of you at this point, right? You're withholding something, it's obvious, and it's not very nice. Uh, it's way nicer than you think, lad. Max! Indeed, but, oh, look at the time. Shouldn't you be doing what you do best? Uh, which is what? Why, reading the chapter, of course. Here, I'll mash the music button. I say, there's your intro music. So you are good to go, monsieur. Aye, thumbs up. Thought you didn't have any thumbs. Chapter 27, Baptism by Ice. Williamsburg, Virginia, October 26, 1753. Governor Robert Dinwiddie paused to look out the window overlooking the palace green that stretched from the red brick governor's palace all the way to the bustling Duke of Gloucester Street. Merchants were busy selling their wares, craftsmen worked to build furniture, forge iron, and weave yarn, and the taverns and coffee houses were filled with people exchanging the latest news in this bustling capital city. The colony of Virginia was thriving, but danger lurked along her frontier. The governor clasped his hands behind his back and frowned. Something must be done, and soon, he thought. When he first heard last spring that 1,500 Frenchmen were building two forts in the Ohio Territory claimed by the British, he immediately wrote to inform the king. The French were moving down from Canada and into that valuable land. 
If the British didn't do something about it, that rich territory could slip through England's hands. Five years earlier, the king had awarded a group of Virginia investors called the Ohio Company a land grant of 500,000 acres in the Ohio Valley between the Kanawha and Monongahela rivers. Founded principally by brothers Augustine and Lawrence Washington, the Ohio Company enlisted investors for the venture, including Governor Dinwiddie himself. As part of the grant, they were required to construct a fort to protect the settlement of the land at their own expense. The Ohio Company hired surveyors to discover the best area to settle families and were currently building roads and small trading forts. The most prized area for settlement was at the forks where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers joined to form the Ohio River. This was the gateway into the Ohio Valley, and the Ohio Company held the keys to the gate. The French, however, were trying to pick the lock. With the colony's welfare as well as his personal interests on the line, Dinwiddie wanted to build strong British forts to keep the French out of the area. King George II instructed him to first warn the French to leave the area, then, if necessary, repel force by force. As the two greatest powers in Europe, Great Britain and France had been competing for land and wealth for centuries. They, along with Spain, had claims to stretches of land in North America that resembled a three-piece puzzle. The British possessed the coastline of 13 colonies that extended west to the Ohio Valley, as well as land stretching north to Hudson Bay in Canada. The French claimed the territory west of the colonies, from New Orleans all the way up to New France, cutting through a section of British-held Canada. Spain claimed everything west of France's territory, plus Florida. As the American colonies began to expand further west, they pushed up against French-held territory, and tensions began to rise. It was only a matter of time before a spark would ignite military conflict between the French and the British. Meanwhile, the Native American Indians had to choose sides. Whoever secured Indian support and made the best trade deals would have ultimate control of North America. Unlike the British, the French cared mainly about trading furs, not in taking over Indian land, so they had strong relations with many Indian allies. The most powerful Indians in the East were the nations of the Iroquois Confederacy, or Iroquois League, Mohawk, Seneca, Cayuga, Onondaga, Oneida, and Tuscarora, also known as the Six Nations. They were masters at playing the French and the British against one another, but when the British put pressure on them in the 1750s, they gave up certain rights and became reluctant British allies. After receiving the king's instructions, Dinwiddie sent two men with a message to the French to leave the area, but they failed to reach the frontier outpost. He next called the Virginia General Assembly to meet in a special session in Williamsburg on November 1st about this mounting crisis. But as he gazed out the window, an untried young militia major rode up the palace green towards the governor's palace. Dinwiddie recognized him immediately. At more than six feet tall, he was hard to miss. When the young man's brother had died the previous year, the governor appointed him as a major in the Virginia militia. Although he didn't have any military experience, the 21-year-old was well acquainted with the rugged frontier, having worked as a surveyor. He was eager to prove himself worthy of the rank given him and to honor the memory of his brother, Lawrence. Dinwiddie was about to hear the reason for his visit today. His name was George Washington, and he was here to volunteer to take the governor's letter to the French. December 25, 1753. 
Kate put her paw around Al, who held his paws up to his eyes, afraid of what was to come. Gilliman had sent word for them to join him and Max at a crucial moment with the George Washington mission. Gilliman wanted Al to see what was happening in America, so when he gathered intelligence in the palace in London, he would understand what all the talk was about. Gilliman also needed Al's skills, as well as Kate's abilities, to help out for a brief time in Ohio. While Al dreaded leaving the cheery Christmas comforts of the royal palace in London to enter the harsh, bitter-cold, dangerous wilderness of Ohio, Kate couldn't wait to get there. She and Max hadn't seen each other in years. It only took a brief moment in time before Kate and Al stepped out of the panel of the Iamosphere into the snow-covered land of the Ohio Valley. Ah, sure, and that's cold, Al shouted as his paws hit the icy ground. He rapidly lifted up his opposite fore and back paws about a dozen times, trying to get used to the shock of the freezing cold. And to think a minute ago I were walking on soft red carpets and eating pudding. Max stood there with snowflake-covered black fur, smiling. He didn't even notice Al ice dancing in the background. All he could see was Kate. Max! Kate exclaimed happily, running over to him. They nuzzled and embraced with such warmth that the cold around them vanished. Oh, me love, I'm happy to see you, especially on Christmas. Ah, Merry Christmas, me bunny Kate, Max answered. A dog couldn't get a better gift than this. Welcome to Ohio, Gilliman greeted them. He was in his natural mountain goat form, so was warm and toasty in his heavy wool coat. Merry Christmas. Uh, I were a wee bit merrier in the warm palace, Al whined. I were about to eat dessert. Gilliman chuckled. <laughs> I'm sorry for your suffering, Al. Uh, listen, you spoiled kitty, Max scolded. Me and Gilliman have traveled in nothing but freezing rain and raging snowstorms for the past month, protecting George Washington. We've crossed mountains on muddy roads filled with savage Indians, and all this after George were sent away by the Frenchies with a big fat new. And here you be complaining about missing your sweeties. Steady, Max, Kate said, calming her mate. It sounds like a terrible journey. What happened with George Washington? Well, he started out with Governor Dinwiddie's letter from Williamsburg on October 31st, began Gilliman. He had gathered a group to travel with him, including a French translator and friend, James Van Brahm, four Indian traders, and Christopher Gist, a surveyor and guide with the Ohio Company. Along the way, Washington met with Iroquois Indian chief Half-King. "'Why'd Washington meet with only half a king?' Al asked, shaking his soggy paw. "'What happened to his other half?' He furrowed his brow, trying to imagine the scene. Max rolled his eyes. Indians have nicknames with special meanings, lad. This Indian chief's important because he's friends with the full king of England. Gilliman nodded. The support of these Indians will be crucial if tensions with the French lead to fighting. Washington needed to make sure these Indian friends would remain on the side of the British if it comes to war. George Hussle met up with some French deserters and gathered intelligence about men and forts up and down the Mississippi River, Max added. French deserters? Al asked hopefully. 
Can I meet with them to share some intelligence, too? I know a lot about desserts. Max ignored Al and turned to Kate. George keeps a journal and writes down in lots of detail everything he hears. So now he knows all about the French positions if it comes to war. So will it come to war? Kate asked, worried. That will depend on what Governor Dinwiddie does with the French commander's letter, Gilliman answered. French commander Jacques Legardeur de Saint-Pierre politely met with Washington, even whining and dining him, but he sent Washington back to the governor with a letter saying the French have no plans to leave Fort Le Boeuf or any part of the Ohio Territory where they are planted. Le Boeuf? There's a fort of beef? Where's the beef? Al asked, brightening. He then furrowed his brow with a dutiful expression. Gilliman, I hereby volunteer to go stay with the French commander and keep an eye on things there. The big cat broke out into a goofy grin and whispered to Kate, With French desserts and beefy forts, this place is sound and better all the time. Actually, Al, I have something far more important for you to do elsewhere, Gilliman answered. And as soon as you're finished with your mission, you can head back to London. Kate will follow you there later. All right, no beefy fort, Al replied with a disappointed frown. Where do you want me to go? Gilliman got right in his face. To the murdering town. Al's eyes widened, and he cried before attempting to run off, slipping on the ice. Not all right, not all right, not all right. December 26th, 1753 George Washington stuffed his regular clothes into his pack after changing into a match coat, skins matched to wrap around his upper body, and an Indian walking dress, a knee-length coat, belted at the waist with hip-length leggings and moccasins. He took his journal, which detailed this harrowing journey, the letter from the French commander, and other important papers, and secured them in the pack along with other provisions. He put the pack on his back and picked up his gun. You ready, Gist? Just about, Gist replied, also putting on the warm Indian dress. Van Brom should be able to get the horses and men to some decent shelter by nightfall. I'm not so sure about us, though. Washington and Gist were now on their own to travel by foot through the snowy and icy conditions to reach Williamsburg. The horses were too weak to carry the heavy baggage on through the deep snow. But Washington was anxious to make it back to the governor as quickly as he could. So he gave money and directions to Van Brom, who was to take the horses, baggage, and supplies and make their way toward Virginia at a slower pace. Washington and Gist would find other horses to take them to Williamsburg once they crossed through the woods and over the Allegheny River. Washington exhaled icy breath and secured an old hatchet to his belt. I want to make it past the murdering town and head on toward the Indian village of Shanopins after that. Gist picked up his pack and gun. I sure hope that place doesn't live up to its name while we're passing through. December 27th, 1753 What am I doing here, and why did Gilliman need me? Max be the one who's been protecting George Washington. Al whispered fearfully to himself. He was crouched behind a cluster of boulders along the snowy road. 
Gilliman said that if you live up to your name of noble famous warrior by helping George Washington, you'll help young George do the same. Kate had told him before she left with Max. It must be something important. You can do it, Al. We're going ahead up the trail to make preparations with Gilliman. I'll see you back in London. Al peered over the boulder and saw George and Gist trudging through the snow-covered road toward him. An Indian guide had come alongside them, offering to help lead the men through the territory. Al thought through all that Gilliman had told him about George Washington, how he had overcome losing his father as a boy, then losing his brother Lawrence, and how hard he was working on this mission to prove himself a capable soldier and leader for the governor. Al thought of his spoiled George back in the comfort of England, and he frowned, ashamed of how spoiled he had become too. Come on, Kitty, be brave, for America's George. The Indian guide seemed to be looking around nervously, glancing back at George and Gist. He went up the trail ahead of them, as if he were looking for something, and ducked behind the cluster of boulders near where Al sat. He quietly cocked his gun, and Al's heart started racing as he realized what the Indian was getting ready to do. Al saw that George and Gist were now only about thirty feet away. His paws went up to his mouth. Oh, no! That Injun's going to shoot! Maker, help! The Indian took aim, and Al took off running. Al didn't know what he was going to do, so he figured he would just do what came naturally. George and Gist were now only fifteen feet from the Indian, who was ready to fire. Al instinctively sprang with his back paws and jumped up to reach the Indian, sinking his iron claw into his arm, causing the Indian to fall back as his finger pulled the trigger. The bullet went whizzing high over George's head, and together he and Gist ducked. Al scampered off as George and Gist quickly got up and ran toward the Indian, who was on the ground holding his arm. They took him into custody and hurried him away with them in case there were other Indians in the area who also wanted to murder them. Al lay on his back, breathing heavily from the scary moment, and smiled at his iron pointer claw. He rarely used it, but today it had saved George Washington from the Indian sniper. Well, I didn't get the beefy fort mission, but there were no murder in this town today. A seven seal suddenly appeared on the rock next to his head, and he grinned. But I do know where I can get some beef following this mission. He clawed through the seven seal and entered the Iamosphere, returning to London, to his George, and to the royal kitchens of the palace. Allegheny River, two miles above Shanopins, December 29, 1753. I expected the river to be completely frozen, but it looks like it's only frozen about 50 yards from each shore, Washington told Gist, scanning the icy river running through this frigid wilderness. Chunks of ice bobbed along rapidly through a middle channel of the Whitewater River. The frozen river must have broken up above here, with all those chunks floating downstream. Gist plopped down on a fallen log, exhausted from the past three days. They had kept the Indian sniper with them until 9 p.m. that night and let him go. They then kept walking the rest of the night to get out of reach of any other Indians from the murdering town who might pursue them. After briefly resting, they walked on until they reached the river. There's no way to get across but on a raft, Gist warned. 
He rubbed the back of his neck and pointed to the hatchet. At least we have one hatchet. George lifted it from his belt and felt the blade frowning. It's not very sharp, but it will have to do. How many logs do you think we'll need? Gist sized up Washington's height and his own. At least ten across and five underneath. Max and Kate hid in the shadows. All right, lass. They're here safe and sound. That kitty came through. I never doubted he would, Kate replied with a smile. She nuzzled Max. I'm sorry Gilliman had to leave, but I'm enjoying me Max time. <laughs> me too, lass, Max replied. He looked at George Washington's large frame. I hope the beaver's finished working. Time's up. Gist closed his eyes and wrapped his cold hands around his tin cup, breathing in the smell of hot coffee. He had built a fire and made a pot, while George cleared an area by the bank to build their raft. Gist took a sip and looked up at the wintry sky, willing the sun to come out and warm the day. George walked up to the fire and warmed his hands briefly. He then poured a cup of coffee and stood with a hand on his hip. It's light enough now to find the trees we need for our raft. It will likely take us all day to build it, Gist replied, taking another sip of coffee. Then we'd best get started, George declared, downing his coffee, setting down his cup, and walking to the tree line. We can't thank you and your family enough, Howard, Kate said happily to the plump brown beaver. It was no trouble at all. The beaver replied with a gravelly voice. He gave a big grin that showed his prominent buck teeth. Howard, Max, and Kate watched George and Gist happily piling up the logs for their raft. They couldn't get over their good fortune. A family of beavers had felled ten trees in the night, leaving piles of fresh wood shavings around the stumps. With George only having a single dull hatchet, you helped make building their raft easier, stated Max. No, all they have to do is chop up those felled trees, trim them, and tie them together. It's still a lot of work, but now at least it's more doable. <laughs> Thanks, lad. Max chuckled as Howard's wife and cute little beavers waved and disappeared under the water. We needed to make a way for a new canal anyway. The wife wants to renovate the lodge and add a new room this spring. Besides, he said, yawning, Ugh, the family needed a night out after being cooped up inside for the past month. You remind me of a kind beaver friend we knew a long time ago. His name was Bogart, and he loved to carve little wooden figurines with his teeth. Kate told Howard, glancing at Max. His figurines were like pieces of art. Aye, ark art, Max mumbled under his breath. Bogart had been on Noah's Ark with them and kept his teeth filed with his carving projects. You don't say, Howard said, tapping his big teeth. I'll have to see what kind of art these babies can carve for the kits. For now, though, I'm heading to bed. If you need me, you know where I'll be. Sleep well, Howard, and thanks again, Kate told him, kissing the beaver on the cheek. Happy dreams, lad, Max added, as the beaver waddled away and slipped into the water to join his family back in the lodge. Beavers worked at night and slept during the day, so it was past his bedtime. Kate and Max turned their gaze back to George and Gist. How long do you think it will take them to finish their raft? Hours, Max replied, looking up at the cold winter sky and then at the men. It's their turn to be the busy beavers.
The sun set behind the veil of clouds as George Washington sat on a tree stump to rest for a moment. He wiped his brow and took a sip of water from his canteen. He leaned an elbow over his knee as he examined the completed raft. I didn't expect the river to not be frozen when we arrived. I didn't expect the felled trees, nor did I expect it would take us until sunsetting to finish the raft. Gist stretched out his back and circled his arm to work out a sore shoulder. Well, we'll be able to float over first thing in the morning. George put the cap back on his canteen, shoved it in his pack, and stood to his feet. No, we cross now. Gist looked at George with surprise. And I wasn't expecting this. There's no reason we can't make a river crossing at night, even if it is icy. It's only 800 yards, the former surveyor told Gist, patting him on the back. Let's shove off. Gist exhaled and let his arm drop to his side. Whatever you say, Major Washington. He gathered up his things and followed George down to the water's edge. Max and Kate looked at one another in alarm. This could be risky, lass. Max said. Let's follow along the riverbank and keep an eye on them. They made their way in the darkness down to the riverbank. George handed his pack to Gist, who tied it on the raft. He then shoved with all his might against the slippery bank, drenching his feet in the icy water as the edge of the ice gave way. The rickety floating platform slid into the turbulent river. The men took long sticks to use as setting poles to steer them amid the floating chunks of ice and debris. The makeshift raft teetered as George climbed aboard and got to his feet. The men slowly spaced themselves apart on opposite sides of the raft until they felt the right balance to keep things steady. In the darkness, they could hear chunks of ice scraping along the frozen stretch of river near either bank. The swirling river sprayed them with its icy mist, and their feet and ankles were soaked. "'I don't like this,' Max growled. Uh, "'Go get Howard, Kate.' No! I! Kate exclaimed, running off into the darkness to the beaver lodge. As she ran off, Max made his way out to the water's edge. The men painstakingly made their way halfway across the river, when suddenly they became jammed against a massive chunk of ice. The rushing force of water wasn't about to stop. It would either break up their raft or move them out of the way. George and Gist filled with fear as they battled the ice with their setting poles. We're going to sink! Gist shouted against the roar of the white water. This raft won't hold against this ice! Steady, Gist! George shouted back with a firm voice. He was terrified on the inside but kept his calm on the outside for Gist. Hang on! I'm going to put out my setting pole to try to stop the raft! Hopefully the ice will pass us by. Just as George pushed with his setting pole, the rushing river violently pushed back against it, jerking and sending him falling into the icy clutches of the Allegheny River. Immediately his lungs contracted with the sub-freezing temperature. He gasped for air as he surfaced and heard Gist yelling his name. Gist got to his stomach and crept across the raft, stretching his arm out to try to reach George ten feet away. George could feel his muscles cramping against the cold. Every second seemed like an eternity, as the ice water felt like a thousand needles sticking into his skin. Something pushed against George's foot as he struggled to swim against the rushing current. 
Within moments, he was able to touch the tip of the raft with his fingertips and then grab hold of one of the raft logs. Gist grabbed his arm and pulled him up onto the raft. Together, they fell back into a soaked, freezing heap. The adrenaline raced through their veins as they tried to calm down after their terrifying experience. Thank you, Gist, George gasped. What was it you said about there being no reason we couldn't cross an icy river at night? Gist teased as he rested his head back on the raft to catch his breath. I'll give you a couple of reasons now. George patted him on the foot and tried to catch his breath against the shivering cold. Touché, my friend. George's teeth chattered as he spoke. Now to get to the other side. I don't think they'll make it across in that raft tonight, Howard said to Max, who rode along on the beaver's back. The river's freezing up. Aye, it's a good thing you were there to push George back to the raft, but you're right. They can't make the journey tonight, Max agreed, looking around. He spotted an island in the middle of the river. Take me over to that island, then go back and push the raft in this direction. Then please bring Kate to me. Uh, Thanks, lad. No trouble at all, the beaver replied, swimming toward the island. George and Gist fought against the angry river current with their setting poles, but it was no use. The ice was starting to back up. They were wet, freezing cold, and exhausted. They both knew they couldn't make it back to either side of the river. Keep pushing, Gist, George shouted, scanning the area around them for options. Please, God in heaven, help us. Suddenly, they felt the raft break free from the quickly freezing ice all around them. It was enough movement to set the raft drifting, and he soon saw that they were nearing an island. Look! An island! We can at least get out of the river until daybreak! Gist shouted, Huzzah! We can make it! In short order, the men wedged the raft against the shore of the rugged, tiny island and took their packs with them to the dry land. They both collapsed on the ground and wrapped their arms around their knees, catching their breath. Thank you, God, George prayed silently. They're on land, but not out of danger, Max whispered to Kate. They stood behind some trees on the tiny island. We don't have a choice. Agreed, love. We've got to keep them warm, Kate said. Let's go. Together, Kate and Max walked out to the men who were shivering and huddled together. George jumped as Max nudged his hand. What is that? Max licked his hand, and relief flooded him as he realized it was a little dog. It's a dog. Out here on this island? Two of them, Gist answered as Kate came to nuzzle him. They must have got out here when the river was frozen, and and then were stranded when it broke up. They just... "'Walked across the ice?' George surmised. "'Hello, little fella.' He picked Max up and held him against his chest, immediately feeling the warmth from the dog. Gist did the same with Kate. "'I wasn't expecting to get baptized with ice,' George said, burying his face in Max's soft fur. "'But neither was I expecting this.' "'From no on, you best expect the unexpected, lad,' Max thought. (laughs) "'Happens to me all the time.' 
It was an agonizingly bitter night, but George and Gist huddled with Max and Kate under the trees and made it through until dawn, having fallen asleep from utter exhaustion. December 30th, 1753 Get up, lad! Max barked, nudging George's leg. Get up and get moving! George opened his eyes and quickly sat up, looking around him. He put his hand out to pet Max's head and finally could see him in the light of day. Why, you're a Scotty. He looked over and saw Kate pulling on Gist's pant leg. And you're a Westie. Gist slowly roused and sat up. He shook out his hands. I can't feel my fingers. George frowned and reached over to inspect his hands. Take off your gloves. Gist did as he was instructed, and the tips of his fingers were red and hard. They're frozen. What about your feet? George asked. My left foot feels all right, but some of my right toes feel numb, Gist answered. I think they're frozen, too. So is the river, Max barked, running to the shoreline. You can walk out of here, no. So is the river, observed George as he looked out at the now still Allegheny River. He smiled and put his large hand on Gist's back. We can walk the rest of the way to the other side. Gist rubbed his hands together, trying to get the circulation going. That's good news. He got to his feet. What about you, George? Are you all right? Anything frozen? Rays of sunlight peeked through the clouds and immediately lifted their spirits. George leaned back his head, closed his eyes, and smiled as the sunlight warmed his face. Amazingly, he was completely fine. Nothing was frozen, and he didn't even have a sniffle. I'm fit as a fiddle. Are you able to walk on that foot? I'll manage, Gist replied, petting Kate before getting to his feet. Then let's get out of here, ordered George, picking up his pack and gun and walking toward the frozen river. Unless you'd like to wait for the river to thaw and try the raft again. <laughs> you won't catch me on an icy river for a long time, Gist replied with a laugh. Max and Kate happily trotted along in front of George and Gist until they were safely across the frozen river. When they reached the other side, the dogs ran off in one direction while the men walked away in another. George smiled at the two Scottish dogs running away. I do know one thing. If I ever have to cross an icy river at night again, I want a pair of Scots to go with me. Hi, and who can blame the lad? Oh, brother. Okay, so before we heard more of our story today, uh, what was it you were keeping from me? Because moving on to something more pertinent... Aye, it'd be time for another edition of Nigel's News Nuggets. I want to know what... Uh, excuse me, announce the chap. Uh, my turn. <laughs> uh, greetings. Nigel P. Monaco reporting from the newsroom. I say, amazing how things can change if you give them, oh, say, a century or two. <laughs> See if you can figure out where I'm going with this. For it might interest you to know that had Colonel Washington and Mr. Gist been able to wait until our modern times, uh, they would have had a much different journey indeed. For crossing the Allegheny where they did would have meant simply driving over on the 40th Street Bridge, or perhaps the 31st Street Bridge, where they could have booked a very nice hotel room with hot showers and a breakfast buffet. Or they could have gotten a ride across the river on the North Shore Expressway, 
Well, if they timed it properly, they might have taken in an NHL hockey game or an NFL playoff game at Heinz Field. For this portion of the Allegheny soon combines with the Monongahela River to form the mighty Ohio River, indeed three rivers in one place. And that vast wilderness through which Washington and Gist were forced to travail is now a sprawling city known for the production of steel and glass, and ketchup and relish. Well then, I say, have you deduced the identity of this important American city? Why, if you've guessed Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I say, huzzah! Well done! Brilliant! And so, in short, instead of those two rugged individuals coping with the wild frontier, the sports page would read, Washington takes on Pittsburgh! <laughs> I say, uh, uh, for Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco, reporting. Okay, well done, Nigel. Now! Now? Now it is time for Jenny's Corner! Miss Jenny? Oh, for goodness sake, what's this about? Well, someone's got to tell him. Max? Uh, don't look at me. Liz? Well, it is not my place. Nigel? Ah, uh, well, I'm not quite prepared for... Who's going to tell him? Uh, why don't you tell him yourself, Liz? You you want me to tell him? Hi. Oui. Indeed. Because this is really big news. This is exciting news. So, so tell, tell him! him. Uh, play? Okay, okay, I'll tell him. Okay, ready? <clears throat> Monsieur Announcer Lad. Yes? Max, Liz, and Nigel and I are happy to tell you that you... Drumroll, please. Have won the gold medal award in the 2021 Reader's Favorite International Book Awards for the best fiction audiobook for The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key. Huzzah! Huzzah! Congratulations, Monsieur Announcer Lad. It's still Denny. We're so proud of you, and keep up the good work. Wow, um, I'm speechless. Well, this is the first time for everything, and Max! I say, well done, old chap. Uh, here, put her there. Uh, where? Shake my tiny little paw. Um, where? Oh, oh, there it is, there it is. Uh, thank you, Nigel. Listen, I am truly honored by this. But of course, no matter how well I did, you don't win awards like this unless you've got really incredible material. And Miss Jenny writes amazing books. That's all there is to it. And I feel very fortunate to be the guy that she lets narrate them. So uh, that would mean congratulations to you too, Jenny. Well done. And may God get all the glory. Oh, if I would have known in time, I would have baked you a cake. Aw, oh, man. Uh, don't be too disappointed, lad. Have you ever had one of Liz's cakes? Uh, no. Tuna fish and catnip is my specialty. Oh, well, I can barely handle it, and of course we mice will eat just about anything. Yeah, I gotcha. Ah, uh, thanks anyway, Liz. I can still try to win. Uh, no, 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 not, 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 not necessary. I don't mind. Oh, no, no. Listen, it's the thought that counts. Ah, uh, but I could go ahead and whip something. Ah, uh, no, thank you. Really. Uh, uh mash the button, Max. Hi. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. 
And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.